Well, if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. Acts chapter 18, I'll begin by reading from verse 1. So, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in the vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaints. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. They all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, in the 17th century, a Puritan by the name of Thomas Brooks, he wrote a book titled, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. In that book, the main idea of that book is that Satan has his devices to, or even his tactics to deceive, uh, to entangle, uh, or to undo the souls of men and women and how we can find remedies against Satan's attack. And one of his tactics is discouraging God's people. Discouraging God's people. And how does he do that? Well, Satan tries to discourage us by getting us to focus more on our sin than on our Savior. Especially when we repeat the same sin over and over again. And the enemy also accuses us while whispering in our ears, or maybe we tell ourselves in our own head, that there is something wrong with us. 
and that there is no evidence of salvation in our life. And as a result, not only is there doubt or fear, but even discouragement. We who once were excited and eager about serving Christ don't feel confident in our service to our Lord and Savior in ministry. And maybe we, don't have, we no longer have delight in him that we once did. When that happens, Satan's start of discouragement becomes successful. We can easily then succumb to temptation of sin, give up on mortifying or, give, or killing sin by the power of the Spirit. And we, sometimes we may excuse ourselves with, by reasoning with ourselves, well, there's no point of going on. I have lost the battle. Why bother trying anymore? Now, the question I impose on you is this. Are you feeling discouraged right now, this morning? What is that one thing currently that is discouraging you? It may or may not be sin that is weighing you down. It may be related to church ministry, family life, work life, school life, whatever that may be. But Satan can certainly use those things in life, those aspects of life, to discourage you. Now, I'm aware that the title of this message is Face Fear Faithfully and not Face Discouragement, but I like alliteration, so Face Fear Faithfully. But discouragement and fear can be related, they f- and they feed into each other thus creating a cycle of negative emotions that can make it difficult for a person or even for a believer to move forward in life. And the reason why I bring up the topic of discouragement is because of the life of the Apostle Paul. Many of the commentaries that I have studied for this morning's message, they all mention about Paul's discouragement in this chapter. Now, we don't find the word discouragement in this passage but certainly we can find the word, the concept of fear in verse 9. And so I think there are three reasons why Paul might have been discouraged in this passage. You see, he, gets, he arrives in, in the city of Corinth, and, so, and when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, he wrote about his emotional state when he first arrived in the city. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-3 to says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what does he say here? And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And while Paul was in Corinth, he most likely had used that time to write a letter to the Thessalonians saying that he was in distress and he was uh, in affliction. So that's the first reason. Second reason we must remember is that this was Paul's second missionary journey. So and when we trace his journey at the start of Acts 16 until now, it was certainly a difficult one. And just before he began his journey, he and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement and separated from each other. And then he traveled, if you see in the map, he traveled from the east of the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the west of Asian Sea. And there were moments where the Holy Spirit prevented him from going to certain places. And then when he got to Philippi in Acts 16, if you remember, you know, he had a real, relatively successful ministry, but 
He was beaten badly. And he was thrown into prison. And then eventually he was eventually forced out of the city. And who knows if he recovered from those physical injuries. However, persecution just kept following Paul when he was in Thessalonica and in Berea. And then he was forced to escape from danger over and over again. And if you can imagine, if you can imagine, that would have been so exhausting mentally, physically, emotionally, right? It's more typical for a missionary to remain in one city for a long period of time. And then in our previous passage, he arrived at Athens all by himself, and he tried to evangelize to the intellectuals and the Greek philosophers, but I think he had a meager success. Some people did come to Christ, but it was rather small, I think. So that's the second reason. When you trace his journey, it was a difficult one. Third, from this passage alone that we've just read, we can discern three reasons why Paul could have been discouraged and perhaps fearful. See, first, he arrives in the city of Corinth all alone, without Timothy, without Silas, his ministry partners, because they were uh, ministering to the new churches in in Macedonia. And one of the driving forces of discouragement to to discouragement is in ministry is uh, loneliness. A recent study by Lifeway Research has revealed that the stress of ministry so often leads to loneliness and the lack of friendship with others. The second reason is also because Paul doesn't seem to have the financial means to continue as a full-time missionary, and we will learn about that. So he had to go and work as a tent maker and be a, or be, a, be bivocational. And the third, the third, third reason why we think he can be discouraged and fearful is what God tells him in verses 9 to 10. He tells him, do not be afraid. This seems to imply, this seems to suggest that Paul had experienced a moment of weakness uh, and fear of persecution, which seemed to have discouraged him and from proclaiming the gospel further. So brothers and sisters, I want to put forward to you a reality, and that is we will fee- face fear and discouragement in our life. If you think about it, Paul, he had every reason to give up his ministry and abandon his post. But whatever discouragement Paul faced, the Lord in his providence encouraged him so that he could have the courage to face fear faithfully. And so with that said, let's now come to the passage. Let's come to the exposition of God's word and learn how God would encourage and strengthen Paul and what that may mean for us. And see, first, God surrounds us with godly Christians. You see, in verses 1 to 3, Paul arrives in the city of Corinth, and then he eventually meets with this Jewish couple. But first, let's talk about the city of Corinth. See, Corinth was about 30 kilometers west of Athens, and it was considered the capital city in the province of Achaia, and also a major city in the Roman Empire. Now, if you want to understand 
the historical and cultural context of the city of Corinth, all you need to do, all you need to do is to compare this city with this city like Las Vegas because it is infamously known as the Sin City. Corinth was notorious for its hedonism, uh, loose living, sexual immorality, and prostitution. And it was a center of cult worship towards Aphrodite, also known as Venus, the goddess of fertility and sexuality. And at one time, Corinth, the city of Corinth, had 10,000 temple prostitutes, and they did business with the sailors, uh, the sailors and other business people who were passing through the town. And in fact, the name Corinthian was synonymous for the most perverted behavior. Hence, when Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, he had to address the issue of sexual immorality because some Christians were committing sexual acts in the church. See, that is what Paul was up against when he arrived in Corinth. It was no easy task. And then he meets a Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila was a native of Pontus. Uh, Pontus was located in the region of modern-day Turkey. Northern, it's the northern part of Turkey, near the Black Sea. Uh, apparently in the text, it says that they recently came from Rome, uh, Italy, and he, they arrived in Corinth. Uh, because Emperor Claudius com commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Why? Well, according to some historians, it's because the Jews were constantly uh, rioting against the, at the instigation of this man named Christus. Now, I won't go into all that detail, but it, that's all you need to know. They were driven out of Rome because of the rioting happening in Rome. Now, why did Paul meet with this Jewish couple? Now, it's not certain how Paul knew about them, maybe because they were Jewish, maybe because they were Christians. Most, more likely, God brought him to this couple who were not only Jewish and maybe followers of Jesus, but they had a business in tent making. And lo and behold, Paul too was a tent maker. And so this Jewish couple who were believers hired Paul to work for them as it was their trade. And we'll learn more about this couple later on in this chapter, but they became part of Paul's missionary team. And so God in his providence surrounds us with godly Christians as companions and friends. So brothers and sisters, if you're feeling lonely in your walk with Christ, do not neglect the gathering of the church. It's important to meet with Christians, ideally every single day, but don't just meet on Sunday. Meet also another part of the week, another day part of the week. Very important because we need to be encouraged by one another because that is also God's way of encouraging us, just, 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 just like how he encouraged Paul here when he was alone in Corinth. Second thing is that of how God encouraged Paul, may have encouraged Paul, is that God provides it for his needs and he also provides for our needs. Now, I mentioned that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he exhausted his ministry funds. That's why he needed to work as a tent maker. Now, in missionary circles, and some Christians will use the term tent maker or tent making. Maybe some of you have heard that term before. Now, unlike the Apostle Paul, these Christians are, are not literally making tents 
but it's a, just an idiomatic way of saying or, or describing a Christian who has to work a paid job in order to support himself or herself to be in the mission field. Or sometimes it can refer to Christians uh, who's bivocational, uh, meaning that they're working in the Christian ministry and also in the secular work. And as far as we know, this is the first time in the life of Paul as a missionary. This is the first time it happened in Paul's life and that it was necessary for him to support himself financially by finding a job. He was, he was financially covered by his home church in Antioch, but now he's rather far away from home. And also for the sake of his credibility, and also he describes more about that in other letters like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul explains in Paul explains that he doesn't want to be a burden for the new churches that he planted. He doesn't want the new believers to misunderstand that his motivation and intention of proclaiming the gospel was for financial gain. So he didn't ask them for the money. And so he preached the gospel free of charge. You see, one of the biggest challenges, and even possibly nightmares, for church planters, uh, pastors, and even missionaries is not having enough funds to support themselves for gospel ministry. Nonetheless, we see here in this passage that God will provide for Paul's financial needs. How? Here's a secret. By working at a paid job. Not a surprise. It's not rocket science. Get to work. Go find a job. And I suppose it wouldn't be too much of a burden for Paul to work because he just needed to support himself. That's all he needed to do, support himself financially. But maybe for some other, for other people, who, other brothers and sisters who want to be missionaries, it may not be as simple because they have a family to take care of. You see, working to provide for yourself is a biblical principle. We're called to work. One cannot simply pray and ask God to just provide for you without working. And certainly... The Apostle Paul could have just prayed and asked God to bless him with financial with funds. But God provided him through ordinary means, which is working. And by working, he can at least still go to the Jewish synagogue every Sabbath to reason and persuade the Jews and Greeks to believe in Christ. But this is an important note to make in verse 5. Because... Paul worked as a tent maker temporarily. He didn't do it forever because he eventually receives financial support from the churches in Macedonia through Timothy and Silas. Now, he says here in, verse, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, And when I was with you, writing to the Corinthians, and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers, namely Timothy and Silas, who came from Macedonia, supplied my need. So I refrain and will refrain from burdening you in any way. And who supplied for, who gave Paul the supply? Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So the church of Philippi, whom God the, the church that, God, that, that Paul planted earlier in chapter 16. Therefore, when looking at verse 5, 
But what's to keep in mind? After Paul received the funds, he became full-time again. He became relentless in proclaiming the gospel. And it says here that he was so focused, he was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah, that the Christ was Jesus. So he's very focused. Not only does he receive funds, or his ministry partners are here with him to give him reports of what's happening with the new churches planted. You see, he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 7, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as long as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. You see, as you can imagine, this report that Paul received from Timothy surely energized and encouraged him. He didn't just need to proclaim Christ on the, only on the Sabbath, but now he has opportunity to proclaim Christ to the Jews every other day of the week. And yet, Paul now meets, he meets an opposition again from the Jews after becoming full-time. Now, what does this mean here? He says, it, it, it says that after, they, after the Jews oppose Paul, Paul responds by saying, your blood be on your head. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then only that, he said, apparently he shook off garments, his garments. Now, what does this mean? Paul's action was symbolic. It is similar to the practice of shaking off the dust from one's feet so that the missionaries don't bring people's unbelief to another place. And then Paul's pronouncement of judgment upon them, he pronounced judgment upon them since these Jews were so hard-hearted and refusing to believe, refusing to repent and turn to Christ. And that when Paul says, your blood be on your head, what he's saying is that if they suffer punishment in hell, they're responsible. They're responsible for rejecting the gospel. And so he's now going to relocate. He's going to relocate next door. But just to let you know, it doesn't mean he doesn't evangelize to the Jews anymore. He's just simply moving on. You see, he goes next door to the house of a man named Titius Justice. Now, nothing more is known about him besides being a worshiper of God, which was an expression of being a Gentile God-fearer. But what should encourage us is to look to the Lord and to wait upon him patiently. Why? It's because we'll learn in the third point that God will work out the fruits of their, our labor. You see, when Paul was evangelizing the, to, the, to the Jewish synagogue, no, no one came to Christ yet. And so sometimes when people don't come to Christ, come to know Christ, and people reject us, it certainly can discourage us. But we must have God's perspective in mind. And that is... The one who grows the fruit is not us. It is God himself. That when we are serving the Lord, 
He's the one who will work out the fruits. See, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so, when it seemed like there was no hope for the Jews in Corinth, God did a miraculous work in the heart of the leader and the ruler of the Jewish synagogue, Crispus, and also his entire household. And then also says that many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. How many? Many means many. It means a lot of people came to know Christ. These Corinthians, these sexually immoral people, these immoral sinners turned away from their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They came to faith. Even though when we think they're the hardest people to reach, God is the one who can save them. And so we echo Paul's statement when he wrote this to the Corinthians that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, that God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is the faithful one. He will work out his plan of salvation in the hearts of sinners. And when God is at work in saving souls through the ministry of Paul, there is usually an uproar in the city that's stirred up by the Jews. If you remember, that's what happened in previous cities. When so many people came to know Christ, when so many people believe, usually there's chaos that happens. But, but here, we will learn that Paul, that God is going to reassure Paul that he's going to be with him. And so, similarly for us, God reassures us of his presence. Paul speaks, uh, God speaks to Paul in a vision here. And here he gives Paul a command. And when God gives us a commandment, we are to listen and we are to obey. Perhaps this is an important thing for us to know here. He says this, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Again, I kind of alluded to it earlier that Paul was discouraged. And when many people became Christians, he may have been tempted to stop preaching Christ. But God encouraged him and told him, don't do this. Don't stop preaching Christ. Why? I am with you. I am with you. And this is a similar thing that Jesus says. He promised to every Christian. He promised to every Christian in the, when he said this in the Great Commission, that I am with you until the end of the age. And, and God also said that no one will harm you and attack you. Paul, God certainly did that for Paul, right? And then later on, later on, verses 12 to 17, when the Jews brought Paul to court, what happened? God protected him. He wasn't harmed. But that doesn't mean that God made the same promise to us in the, in, because he only made this promise in, this, in Paul's context. But it doesn't mean he made the same promise to us. But we can be assured that God is always with us when we are experiencing trial and tribulation in our life. 
And not only that, God said to Paul, For I have many in this city who are my people. Well, now, what does this mean? Well, I don't think it means that there are many Christians. I don't think this means there are many Christians already in Corinth besides the ones in verse 8. What I do think it means is this, and this alludes back to John chapter 10, verse 16, when Jesus said this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. In other words, there are these people whom God has chosen or elected for the foundation of the world who are to be his people. And that he's telling Paul, go and preach the gospel so that they can be saved. Now, when it comes to visions, it's usually not normative for God to speak to us through visions. But he does clearly speak to us through his word. And we can hear his voice from the pages of the Bible. That is the normative pattern for Christians to hear from God. So when, brothers and sisters, when we are feeling discouraged, let's all come back to the word of God and let's read it. Find encouragement in the Psalms. Find encouragement from the words of Jesus. You can hear his voice from here. And one of the things that made Paul's ministry in Corinth very different than all the other cities that he visited was that he stayed in the city for one and a half years. That's what it says in verse 11. He stayed there for one and a half years. And what did he do during that one and a half years? He was teaching. He was teaching the word of God among them. And if you were given only one and a half year to spend with brand new believers, what would you do? You should be doing what Paul is doing here, teaching and discipling these Christians, these new believers, to become spiritually mature in the Lord. That is very important for us. And should that not be our priority, brothers and sisters? And that is what he did. And discipleship is hard because we had to be patient in teaching them to obey the word of the Lord every day of their life so that they become mature in Christ. And so if there are new believers whom you know, Perhaps it's time for maybe encourage you to maybe talk to them, maybe find ways you can teach them the Bible and help them to grow in the Lord. And so now we'll come to the conclusion of this passage. You see, this, this passage concludes with an incident in verses 12 to 17. Now, I'll, I just want to make a big point here is that the main idea is that God's presence was here with Paul. It showed that God was fulfilling his promise in protecting and being with Paul when he was, in, he was in trial. Now, it says here, in, it says that the Jews, these group of Jews, they brought Paul. What did they do? Why did they bring Paul? Well, they think that he was, he was creating a new religion. Many of these people became Christ. 
And then when they when they when he when he started a new, they thought he started a new religion. They thought that they were going against the Roman law. That's why it says here in verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And then what happened? Well, Galileo, just before Paul wanted to defend himself, Galileo was the one who defended him. He's the one who defended him. And then he told Paul, or he told the folks there, this has nothing to do with me. In, in fact, he interpreted their law, what they said about the law, to the Jewish law. See, this is your religion. This has nothing to do with the Roman law. Go deal with it yourself. Go debate about your own issues among yourselves. Don't get me involved. And so what happened? Later on, these Jews, they seized this ruler, Sosthenes, and they beat him. Why, why did they beat Sosthenes? Well, as I was interpreting, trying to understand this passage, the Greek language is rather difficult to figure out. Uh, but I th- what I think is going on here is that Sosthenes, he might have become a Christian, a follower of Jesus during this time. Remember, he's a, Jew, he's a ruler of the synagogue. And who was the previous ruler of the synagogue? It was Crispus. And what happened to Crispus in verse 8? He became a Christian. And so I would not be surprised that Crispus might have discipled this, might have discipled Sosthenes, and that Sosthenes did not want anything to do with bringing Paul to court. And so they beat him, and then Gallio had nothing to do, didn't want anything to do with this, didn't care too much. But this is really to remind us that God was with Paul during this time. He protected him. He didn't get thrown into prison. He was tried, but he didn't get thrown into prison. And afterwards, Paul got to stay in the city of Corinth many more days, according to verse 18. And so as we slowly wrap up, we're reminded. We're reminded God, that God surrounded Paul with godly Christians like Aquila and Pris- Priscilla. And we're reminded God, that God, when, he, when, when Paul was laboring in the gospel ministry, we're reminded that God was ultimately the one in charge of making the growth happen. And not only that, we're reminded that God provided Paul's needs. And so, whatever you're going through in your life right now, maybe you have needs right now, and that, is, and that need is not being met, and therefore you're being fearful, you may be discouraged. But rest assured, from the, from the testimony of Scripture, that God will provide for our needs. And we also are encouraged to pray, like the Lord's Prayer, Right? Give us this day our daily bread. He will certainly provide for our needs. And lastly, we remember that God reassured Paul of his presence in this chapter. Brothers and sisters, if you're feeling discouraged and fearful and perhaps want to give up, then I want to encourage you 
I really want to encourage you to look upon Jesus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, so that you can have the courage to face fear faithfully by the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in you. If you remember that I mentioned Thomas Brooks' book, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. See, Satan's device is to have you look away from Christ. He wants you to focus on your own circumstance. He wants you to focus on your feelings of discouragement. And the, uh, and the enemy wants you to take him on by yourself. But Thomas Brooke, he indicates that one of the remedies against Satan's devices is not to engage Satan by your own strength, but every day be drawing new virtue and strength from the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like how Paul said in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. Whose armor? God's armor, not your own armor. Put on the full armor of God so that you can wage war against the enemy. I'm reminded of this beautiful hymn. You may know this, Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? Where it says, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide me. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. May these words encourage you, brothers and sisters. Don't lose hope. Turn to, turn to the Lord. Look to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your grace, your abundant grace in our life that we don't deserve. We thank you for your reminder from this chapter that even the Apostle Paul was going through some weakness. Oftentimes we think he is just a strong man. Yes, he indeed was. He was a great theologian. He was a great missionary. But he was also a man just like us. He was a man just like us. And therefore, we can hopefully take comfort in that that he also turned to the Lord, that he tried to imitate Christ, and so therefore we, we are to imitate Christ. So Lord, whatever discouragement and fear and challenging season we're going through in life, may we turn to the Lord and look to him. Help us to be assured that, God, you're with us wherever we're at. Help us be assured that you gave us ordinary means of grace, such as the body of Christ, the church. And if any of us are feeling a sense of loneliness, Lord, help, help us to find ways where we can gather with your people. And if we do know that if there are some people who are lonely, help us, oh Lord, as mature believers, to have the courage and the intention of reaching out so that they don't need to feel alone. Help us to always look upon you, O oh Lord, Lord, many of us are serving, and some of us are feeling tired. 
And sometimes in ministry, we face challenges where we don't see results, we don't see fruit, and that can, re- and ca- can certainly discourage us. But help us to look to you, O Lord Jesus, that results don't, always, don't come from us. It comes from you. The only thing you ask us to do is to be faithful in doing what you've called us to do. So God, I ask you would also encourage us, reassure us of your presence. You never leave us nor forsake us. And not only that, as born-again believers, we have the Holy Spirit. We have God, the Holy Spirit, living in us because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, he is always there to strengthen us, to guide us. And when we fall and fall short, he does, he's there to correct us and convicts us of sin so that, we can, so that we can walk in newness of life. So God, I pray that you would be glorified this, in our lives, not just today, not just tomorrow, but every day of the week, every day of the year, every day of the whole life. Lord, we help us to turn to you. Help us to turn to you and surrender our, our lives to you every single moment of our life. And God, I pray that you'll be with us as we conclude our service. Uh, I pray that you'll keep us all safe as we uh, drive. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.